Welcome to the Five Points Podcast. Five Points is named after an area of downtown Atlanta, just steps from our offices, where cattle paths once converged at the site of an artesian well. The name offers us a metaphor for our goal of presenting a convergence of ideas and genres, artwork and text, north and south, east and west, young and old. I'm Megan Sexton, the editor of Five Points, a journal of literature and art. Join me as we explore Beyond the Pages and listen to contributors from three selections published in our Volume 19, Number 3 issue, which is published prior to our current devastating time of COVID. Recording a podcast during a pandemic is challenging, to say the least, and we could have never imagined it without the expertise of our producer, Laura Norton, and Alexis Weathers, our undergraduate intern. Now more than ever, we yearn for the support and solace of friendship. And along these lines, our first segment explores the long tradition of strong friendships among poets. Think of Wordsworth and Coleridge, John Ashbery and Frank O'Hara, Maxine Cuman and Anne Sexton, just to name a few. We ask Gregory Fraser and Chad Davidson, who are longtime friends, colleagues, and co-editors, to select a poem to read that's featured in the journal by one another and then to talk about what drew them to it. Putting In by Chad Davidson. On an island below Italy, after cocktails, a lemon tree in a pit by the house we rented for a week. What lives in recess, what survives, what can, is bitter. That house of mortalist stone, those gangly roadside caper stems that left green streaks along our car. Roads thin enough to keep our grief out at least sequestered in the port, miles from our sleep. Our landlord died. We heard from a neighbor come for lemons. We capitalized. We were good at that. When my mother died, the family put in time sifting through debris. We couldn't clear it. We didn't want to. Sewing machines and tools that cut baby shoes, bronzed, strangely sharp, dangerously so, swatches, frayed remnants of quilting squares, photos of the year trucks arrived to dig our pool, putting in, the workers called it, though most of it they hauled away. It took whole crews to carve it out. Of all poetic forms, the elegy may be the hardest to pull off and the elegy for a parent, the hardest among these, and the elegy for the mother, perhaps the hardest of all. The type carries all sorts of tonal risks that must be scrupulously managed, lest sentimentality produce the most unsightly kitsch. Still, in the poem can't sidestep or cordon off emotion, too much removed can give the impression of coldness and fail to capture the fullness of loss. Putting in offers a masterful example of how to avoid these two main pitfalls of the form. The poem strikes an artful balance between feeling and thought, while it richly captures the way a specific event of great magnitude, a mother's death, makes itself known in random moments, how such a loss lies in wait in our daily lives, ready to spring on us and reawaken feelings of sorrow, emptiness, aloneness. The two-part structure of the poem perfectly weds form, and content, where a single empty space dividing the first and second stanzas 
signifies the opening inside which a fact of everyday existence, news of an absent landlord's death, instantly calls to mind the loss that never leaves, the mother's loss. Her absence is ever-present, yet dormant most of the time. It lives in recess. Once the initial grief has been processed and the survivor moves back into the routines of travel abroad, cocktails, lemon picking, and, the poet sheepishly admits, capitalizing. As soon as her absence has been reinvoked, a stream of images returns, all connected to her work while alive, quilting, collecting heirlooms, preserving photos that record significant moments of family history, such as the putting in of a built-in pool. These objects become her stand-ins, reanimating her interests and obsessions as a maker of quilts and of strong familial bonds, resurrecting her impulses to collect and organize instead of discard. The poem is deeply connected and concerned with work. Her work, the manual labor of the crew that builds the pool, and above all, the profound work of the poet's grieving, which the text not only suggests, but enacts. One of my tried and true barometers of a poem's success lies with its teachability. I ask myself, could I teach this poem to writing and literature students alike, year in and year out? Will it continue to yield rich interpretations from critical writers and guide creative writers to improve in the craft? My answer in the case of putting in as a resounding yes. Indeed, I know of few contemporary elegies that match its subtle power in dealing with the loss, one might argue, of all losses. The good news. The good news hurtled down in buckets, swelled the sewers, doused the drains, made lakes of all the lawns. We threw on clownish costumes, floppy hats and slickers, oversized galoshes, and sloshed about like children, dizzy with the thought of children bound to be ours at last. Right to left, the good news swept in torrents like the book of Daniel in Hebrew script. We hoisted sail and veered out in the surge. My one hand clutched the rudder, the other gripped my wife, our twins packed deep in her hold. All day and half the night we tossed, Achaeans boldly scudding past Charybdis. Next morning, aground again, under cloudless sky, we found the news in puddles on the walk. Peering into glossy pools, how joyful we appeared, how free of fear, drenched in that early light. Fitting, I think, that when speaking of my poem, Putting In, an elegy to my mother, Greg mentions all the pitfalls of the genre, easy motion, slippery slide into cliche, the cheapening of the entire act of paying respects. From Greg's poem, The Good News, something similar is afoot, some dangerous treading on well-trodden ground. Here it's not the somber tones involved in speaking of a mother's death, but rather the elation of welcoming into the world his children. Welcoming into the world, even there a cliche enters. Even in the best of news, the bad news of shopworn sentiment, the enemy of poetry, can intrude. 
Good news thus works not so much by outright celebration and ecstasy, though surely those sentiments remain present in the poem's propellant, off-balance lineation, breathless syntax, and giddy callbacks. Look at pairings such as galoshes and sloshed, or the savvy description of the expecting couple's behavior, quote, like children, dizzy with the thought of children. Ending one stanza and starting the next with the subject of the good news. Rather, the poem complicates such excitement with imagery pulled from the most unlikely source, biblical apocalypse. The good news of the pregnancy, and let's not forget the title's echoing of gospel, assumes the magnitude of mythological flood, out into which the poet and his wife first tread, quote, in floppy hats and slickers, and then later, as the waters rise, quote, hoist, sail, and veer out in the surge. What playfulness in this mashup. What elation. Not just in the news brought by the doctors, but more so in the artistic energy extracted from such an unexpected pairing. I know Greg well enough to know that fatherhood has been for him just such a revelation with all the complications of that word's etymology intended. I can only guess, not apparent myself, that this sense of the little Armageddon set in motion with the birth of children is a common one. Strikingly uncommon, however, remains Craig's ability to marry the good news with its more apocryphal insinuations, and to do it all in a way that seems at once playful, intelligent, and awe-inspiring. Be sure to check out Chad Davidson's recently published collection, Dark Earth, from Crab Orchard Poetry Series, and Gregory Fraser's new book of poems forthcoming from Northeastern University Press in January 2021. Our next segment features a conversation between Laura Norton and Don Major, whose essay accompanies a selection of artwork by William Gay in Volume 19, Number 3, along with an early interview with Gay by Michael White. Born in Tennessee in 1939, William Gay began publishing his work in his 50s. For most of his life, he worked as a television salesman and in local factories, did construction, hung sheetrock, and painted houses to make a living while writing and making paintings. He was solely self-taught and passed away in 2012. Dawn recounts her journey to discovering Gay's work and reminds us how an artist's work can resonate across time and also how essential scholars, archivists, and executors are in helping us to ensure a creative legacy such as Gay's. So tell me, how did you discover William Gay's work and what made you want to share it with more people? I've always been a literary fiction writer, but over the past few years, I've become more open to genre writers and particularly the horror genre. But I think uh, when I found William Gay, I was just, I think I just Googled something and I, I remember seeing a blurb from Entertainment Weekly that Stephen King voted him, the or voted Twilight, rather, the best uh, horror novel of 2007. Um, so I was looking for something Southern Gothic and I felt like most of my life I had been reading just kind of stodgy British males. Um, and more recently, I mean, I graduated, but a couple, about three years ago, I was in the MFA program, and they taught me to sort of embrace my Southerness. And so William was the perfect combination of, of literary and horror. 
And then when it came time to do my critical thesis, my thesis advisor advised me to pick something that hadn't been done before, not to pick someone that everyone had written about, uh, because it would be easier to make that argument. And then I could later on potentially break those chapters down and turn them into literary articles with journals. And that's what happened when I was at residency doing my graduate lecture. Vegan was in the audience and she heard my lecture on William Gay's world building. And she approached me afterwards and asked me if I would write an essay on William Gay's paintings for five points. So that was amazing experience. And in terms of sharing William, I felt like once I, honestly, I felt like I was channeling him when I was doing my thesis and reading about his life and how impoverished he was growing up and that he was the first in his family to graduate from high school. He never went to college. He ended up going to the Navy and then he came back to his hometown and how important writing was for him. Um, But yet he he had four kids and a wife and he lived paycheck to paycheck and he worked a lot of blue collar jobs where he really couldn't share his writing with people as much. Uh, he was, he said in an interview that he couldn't come on home. He couldn't go back to work on the weekend after the weekend and tell his, his coworkers that he just wrote this most beautiful sonnet. So I felt bad, badly for him in that way. But then later on in his life, much later, he did start getting published. Um, but that, like I said, was much later in life. So, and then he passed away. So I felt like there was just a lot of unfinished work that, and there was actually, as it turns out, a lot of unfinished work that the William Gay Archive has been working on to get published and get out there that I've helped with editorial assistance. And so I felt like if I could advocate for William, who gave me this sort of confidence to advocate, what a good cause. Okay, Don, I'm going to quote you to you here. In your piece, You write that Gay had an ability to capture shadows in his paintings more akin to a photographer looking through the camera's lens. And listeners familiar with the American photographer Todd Heido, famous for his shots of suburban homes against an indigo night with a single lighted window, can see a comparable dynamic in Gay's paintings. His folk art and self-trained painting didn't require fine training and practice. Did his raw artistic form make him stand out? Yes. I mean, I, I mentioned Todd Heido because his night photography has that same haunting quality as William Gay paintings do, and, and also his writing. His paintings have this, they appear to be painted at twilight, and they typically feature pastoral settings of these dilapidated houses that were probably not that nice of a place to live in the first place before they started you know, decomposing and rusting and falling apart. Nothing like the photographer of Slim Aarons, if you're familiar. But I believe, though maybe not so obvious, um, that William, through his paintings, was talking about a lost South. And I think definitely in his writing, there's some sort of this sinking feeling about the landscapes that he writes and paints about, that as if everything's going to be gobbled up. Um, I read this really great article by Sarah Robertson called William Gay, Agrarianism and Environmentalism. And she spoke about William from a environmental stance and not from like, not in the sense of like someone you think of like Janice Ray, where there's, there's a, <laughs> she's environmentalist, but there's definitely this touch of environmentalism that is threaded throughout William about this loss of, Appalachian terrain and I think about it like this like I can imagine what it felt like 
as a child or anyone in these towns and southern towns to see industry come in and just ravage it, you know, with first with coal and then timber and then taking the mineral resources out of there and how chilling it must have been to see all that beautiful nature disappear around you. And I mean, to the extent that, you know, the dams came in and they flooded towns or they moved towns and they were digging up graveyards. That had had, that obviously for me, I think it had an obvious psychological effect on, on William because it comes up time and time again in his writing. And you see it in his paintings where if he doesn't normally like paint a picture that's centered, for instance, it's always off-centered. It's always something that's just kind of, it's not, it doesn't look like it has much time left on this earth. Um, so I think to that way he is commenting about a loss of southernness, but not like a, not like a lost antebellum self because he was impoverished and he was definitely not part of that, that world at all. So I recently read, reread this short story called The Light Painter. It was in um, I Hate to See the Evening Sun Go Down collection. And there's this fellow in it, and his name's Tidewater, who is a painter. And Tidewater reminds me a lot of William, William personally. Like he, he loved painting, and he did a, lot, a bunch of local fairs, but he never really made much money at it or anything, and he didn't have much success. And then one day he paints this perfect picture and it captures light just perfectly. And he becomes famous for it. And then from then on, he knows how to paint light. And so he, he's like nicknamed the light painter. He's sort of a superhero in a way. And finally, after all these years, he's getting credit for honing his craft. But Tidewater doesn't feel totally connected. In the story, he's Tidewater but he's also considers himself the light painter, the superhero, that he lives two lives. And I always felt that that story spoke of William and how he felt like he, like he was possibly living two lives. I think that writers in general feel that way. You feel like you're in that writing world, but it's, that's always turned on. And then the world of the everyday. So reading that story just it made me think about William's you know, writing career and his writing life. So for the next question, I'm going to give our listeners a little background. And once again, I'm going to quote you to yourself a bit here. Gay's work explored elements of the supernatural through his artistic expressions of nature. You write that one of his paintings, which was also, quote, the cover for Time Done Ben Won't Be No More, is a twilight scene of a white cottage set back from the road with smoke piping from the chimney. You go on to discuss how, quote, if one looks closely between the trees to the right of the painting, there is a blur of gray that doesn't belong to the tree limbs. And you speculate that this could represent, quote, the ghost Fleming walks amongst or the witch's cottage. Further, you explain William Gay's techniques of, quote, blurring reality with non-reality, which, quote, can be confusing for reader and viewer alike. But Gay, who himself was interested in the paranormal, enjoyed lifting that veil. Can you expand on how Gay used his paintings to further develop the mystical themes present in his works, such as in this one? The painting solidified what I'd already suspected just from reading his works, that uh, he was building a Southern mythology of sorts. And when I say that, I don't mean on the grand scale of C.S. Lewis or Tolkien, although I sometimes I compare him a lot to those authors because I think that those are the well, most well-known fantasy. 
fantasy building or world building authors that people would know about. But not on that grand scale, but he also, like I mentioned earlier, didn't have the sort of time and education and wealth of background that those those authors had. And then he passed away before I think he was really finished with it. But I think those supernatural elements that you see, that you read about in his works, or that you see, perhaps you see. I mean, there's always this little mystery, like, was that is that form really there in the painting? It's saying something bigger about him as a world-building author. Um, and then, of course, the fact that Gay's places repeatedly turn up, that sort of establishes a legendary land. I like to call it his legendarium. And the use of the supernatural help validates it because it's giving it a history. Like, if you consider, and I'll, I just keep on going back to Tolkien, but if you think about an author like Tolkien and everybody, even if you haven't read the books, they've seen the movies, are familiar with Middle Earth, and you're familiar with this haunted forest of Morkwood. Well, William goes back to Ackerman's Field, and he also goes back to the Hurricane, which is his haunted forest. But the other element that I think really adds to William's work that makes him a little bit more distinct from some of the other Southern Gothic writers is the fact that there's all these witches and ghosts. And that's not to say that Southern Gothic writers don't have those supernatural elements in their work because they do, but somehow or another they're always explained away where there's a kind of a vague sense about William's ghosts and witches. In fact, I've, I've, I think that if you read it from a speculative fiction point of view, that the whole endings completely change. Um, if you open your mind to that. And so when I originally read his work, I, I looked at it from the realistic lens and then I turned it around. And I, and I think because I read the first one with, with Stephen King saying it was scary, that I had those uh, paranormal goggles on, so to speak. In your essay, you mentioned that Gay drew a map that depicted Ackerman's Field, a town that serves as setting in a few of his novels like Provinces of Night and The Lost Country. Can you provide more examples of how he incorporated his artwork into his world building? Actually, his settings occur consistently across his entire body of work. So I recently just, I provided editorial assistance on the last collection of short stories. And there were three stories in which the goblin knob turned up. And that, that's just like a mean honky tonk that shows up through most of his novels as well. But there's the Snow White Cafe, the Belly Stretcher Cafe, the Strand Theater, which is a real place in Holland Wall, Tennessee, where he lived, and Itchy Mama's, which was a bootlegger, a place to buy bootleg liquor. But the most obvious example would be DeFry's Cab Stand, and um, he painted DeFry's Cab Stand. Now, unfortunately, William didn't title any of his paintings or talk about oh, this painting goes with this, so we're only speculating. And he's not alive, so we can't ask him, unfortunately. But I think it's not too far of a stretch to read his work and look at one of his paintings and make that connection. And I've done that in my essay for five points. But it, it's not like set in stone. It's really kind of up to the reader and what they, how they interpret that, that, that sentence. Like, is that the setting or not? So I, as much as I would love to have found some paintings out there that have captured all of his fictional settings... He only really did that with DeVry's capstan. And that image is in five points. If you get the if you get the journal, you'll be able to see it. But for me, it's sort of like an Easter egg hunt. It's really fun to read something and then maybe go to the website and look at the picture. And eventually, yes, we'll have an exhibit and possibly have someone reading there. 
You mentioned that Gay's written work is showcased at the William Gay Archive, which is housed at the University of the South. How can people see his artwork? Well, you can see his artwork right now on the William Gay Archive website. It's not all of his artwork. All of the uh, paintings that we that we have for the archive are with the lead archivist, Michael White in Tennessee, and he's sort of been going around collecting them and because the, the paintings that William painted, generally he would give them as gifts to friends and family members. We're not going to have all of them. Some people are going to hang on to those paintings because they were a gift, but some people have come forward knowing that there's some interest in buying them and that we're trying to get them into one location so that hopefully that we, we can have an exhibit in the future when things kind of go back to normal. That would be wonderful. Thank you for joining us for the second episode of the Five Points Podcast. Please subscribe and rate the show on your podcast app. For more information on Gregory Fraser, Chad Davidson, and Don Major, as well as William Gay, please visit our podcast notes for more information. For more information on Five Points, please visit us at fivepoints.gsu.edu. Be well and stay safe.